I'm not pulling out my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another Drive to Work, Coronavirus Edition. Okay, so I've been doing a series of uh, interviews recently where I've been talking with people who I've worked with on making sets. Uh, now, most of those talks have been with other designers, and we talk a lot about the nuts and bolts of mechanics. But today, I have Doug Beyer with us. We're going to talk War of the Spark, and we're going to focus a little more on the creative side of things. And, I mean, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how I designed to match the creative side, but uh, the, the focus today will be a little bit different. Um, and the reason we chose War of the Spark is... Well, so, hi, Doug. I guess I should bring you in here. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Um... The reason we chose War of the Spark was this is Doug's baby. So, Doug, why don't you talk about sort of how War of the Spark came to be? Yeah, so well, we had uh, a thought of doing a big climactic sort of crossover crossover event, like a, a, a big impactful story climax as a magic set. This was an idea that, that had bubbled up really early on. We, we thought of it as, as an, an event set, a set that was focused more on the story events that was happening in the set rather than on the world it was set in. Um, and we wanted to uh, build an arc. So we, we actually uh, planned the ending many years in advance and pointed three years of sets toward that endings and, and sort of sprinkled details all along that arc to kind of point to this gigantic climax where all these planeswalkers battle Nicobolas. So what I want to point out, just that ending was like you had that ending pretty early, right? Yeah, that that was that was pretty much even during the pitch of it when we weren't even sure what the magic sets along the way were going to be. We had some thoughts, but like we weren't hundred percent sure. But that you know, ending on Ravnica with Nicol Bolas and a war with dozens or hundreds of planeswalkers. You know, at the time, I, I didn't know what was possible, but like that's the that was the vision, and uh, that was something that uh, we hoped to accomplish. Yeah, so, right, when, when you, I remember when you first pitched it, uh, my old take on it when you first pitched it was, as a writer, like, it sounded awesome, right? Like, this giant war with all the planeswalkers fighting. But as a designer, I was like, I get, like, three planeswalkers. I'm not exactly sure how we're going to pull this off. Yeah, and that's same here, to some degree. Like, I, we, um, we expected on the creative side that, like, the the simulation of a war with many, many planeswalkers would be where the set ended up. That, like, yeah, it would have three mythic planeswalkers, there'd be a Nicol Bolas and maybe a couple of other ones. Maybe we could, uh, you know, ask nicely and get up to five or ten planeswalkers just to kind of reinforce that big battle theme. We never expected to actually have designers and play designers really lean in and, and go for the most ambitious version of the set and actually provide dozens of planeswalkers instead. So that was, that was uh, a huge... It, what I found with this set over and over again was that we, we asked for something very ambitious and everyone rose to the challenge. Everyone was like, cool, let's do the ambitious version. We'll figure out a way. We've never done something exactly like this before. It'll take some work. But yeah, let's try to do the ambitious version. And, and something that I want to stress that I think is important for the audience to understand is, I mean, we make magic day in, day out, right? We make a lot of magic sets. That it's kind of... I mean, it's challenging, but it's kind of fun to, like, shoot for the moon. You know, like, okay, here's a crazy idea. Like, 
when I when I say, for example, I didn't know how it was going to work, I didn't say not to do it. I'm just like, okay, I have no idea how we're going to do this. But right, we started with the okay. Well, that, that's what we're doing. We're doing a war with lots of planeswalkers. Figure out a way to make that relevant. Um, and I remember we tr- we tried a bunch of different things. Like we didn't start with let's have 36 planeswalkers. That actually isn't where we started. Um, I I remember I had a mechanic called skirmish. Or like, uh, it was this little game that you would start, and then as you attacked, like, this, it, it, think of like a tug of war, basically. And then as you would hit your opponent, you would pull them toward your side, and you go back and forth. And then uh, the idea was it would keep changing what those were, and then it represented different parts of the of the fight. And anyways, we were just trying a very different thing. Um, and then the big, my big moment was that because uh, we said it was a planeswalker war. And I said, oh, maybe we should do a little less war and a little more Planeswalker. That was the big sort of turning point. Right. I mean, and the skirmish mechanic was interesting. I remember playing several games with that. Like, it was it was fun. Um, it expressed war. But it's, it's right. Like, most of the games had, you know, they were about creatures still uh, more than more than Planeswalkers. And then the, the set just really became more of the Planeswalker set, like, like, you know, it's it's Innistrad, but grave. You know, about, is about graveyards. Uh, Zendikar is about lands. War became about planeswalkers, and um, the the whole focus of it shifted. And that, then we were able to we had all this real estate now to get across the story of um, this massive battle, this massive conflict with planeswalkers. So one of the things that's interesting is, uh, and we'll use this set to talk about a larger thing that's true about magic design in general. So. When we first said, okay, we're going to make a lot of Planeswalkers, we didn't know what the pla- who the Planeswalkers were necessarily. I mean, there, the story had been laid out in very loose form. So, like, there are certain characters we knew had to be there because, look, Liliana or Gideon or Nicole Bolas, like, okay, they were major, major players. Obviously, they had to be there. Um, but as far as, you know, was Soren going to be there? Was Tybalt going to be there? You know, we there's a lot of questions about some of the work key to it. And so what happens, which is interesting, is in design, so in vision design, usually creative will give us a rough idea of what's going on, but the details aren't known yet. So a lot of times it's like, we'll make characters that we know are going to be there, and there's slots. So we made a bunch of like, I think we had some of our planeswalkers like, blue planeswalker, white planeswalker. (laughs) Like, we didn't know who it was supposed to be, and we had had to balance it out. We had to color balance it. Um, And so we, uh, I think... Was James? I'm trying to think who the creative rep was on the design team. I think it was James. Yeah. Because I kept saying, can I get a, a rough list of who the Planeswalkers were? And it was constantly in, in, you know, in flux and changing. And so, um, so let's talk a little bit about how the process of when creatives decide like, who the characters are. or like, like How does that happen? Yeah, so um, as you've mentioned, there's all, very often a a back-and-forth exercise where we uh, we know the, the gist of what's going on, we can we uh, communicate with design, and the, um, you guys build to the gist of, of that theme, and then feedback, like, how is this playing? And we take some of that information and uh, build that into the war building or the, or the story. Um, in this case, um, there was a... <laughs> I think I might even still have the whiteboard somewhere. Like, the whiteboard stayed in the same place for so long that it, the, the marker was having a hard time coming off, but it was like a list of all the planeswalkers and then some of them were circled. 
of like, yes, we definitely want this person. And then sometimes there was scribble out, like, mm, never mind, we, we want to hang on to Garrick for later or whatever. Um, but the, uh, I, I gave many PowerPoint presentations that had the kind of the skeleton, the backbone of the story. And yes, like crucially, major Gatewatch characters, Gideon and Liliani in particular, are, were key. And um, Nicol Bolas, of course. And then a lot of other planeswalkers. It would like, to some degree, to get across the theme of tons of people are here. Just about everybody you've heard of is here was really the main goal. And the particulars kind of came down to, uh, you know, do we do we have plans for one of these planeswalker characters immediately after War of the Spark? Is the, is there or is there some other reason why? Like we didn't want Koff to show up because we thought that he was too focused on his mission on New Phyrexia. Um, so, you know, kind of one by one, we went down through this list and then there were some people that was like, I don't see why not. <laughs> like some of the planeswalkers were here. Like do, does Ob Nixilis care about the fate of Ravnica? No, not really, but he's going to be there if he hears that dozens of planeswalkers or hundreds of planeswalkers are showing up on one world at one time. Similarly, like, uh, does Soren Markov care about Ravnica? Does Nihiri? I mean, not particularly, but once they hear that the other one is going to be there, they want to like go, you know, go and battle each, you know, battle each other because they have kind of this long-running feud going. Well, also um, part of the whole Bolas plan was Bolas had Bolas tricked lots and lots and lots of planeswalkers in his world, and for each planeswalker, it might have been different. Like Bolas had this. This was a master master plan, and like um, we we joked about, okay, well, how does Bolas get this one there? How does he get that one right. there? Right, I, we, like we. We had thought in our heads of like lots of little sort of vignette moments of like what what would it have taken to get uh, to convince this particular planeswalker to show up on Ravnik at a certain point because like and Nicobolus never has to deliver he has the um, he has the immortal sun there which traps planeswalkers on a world so as long as anybody planeswalks to Ravnica they're stuck and and he you know he's ready to devour their sparks so yeah like maybe Kaya. There's like the promise of a mission or promise of control of the Urzov. Um, maybe for Tibble, there's just like the promise of you'll get some some evil mischief to do here if you if you come at this time. So yeah, like for each character, was there something that could be the seed of interest, knowing that um, he was just going to like uh, close the door and throw away the key once they once they showed up. So here I'm going to reveal why uh, Garrick wasn't there. Uh... So at the time, we were in very early stages of Eldraine. And so the story at the time involved Garrick and um, Rowan and Will and Kazmina, who is kind of like a Merlin figure. And then Kazmina leaves the story to go to the War of Spark. Like, like, like part of the story was she was leaving. At, like, we needed to get rid of her or something. It's like, oh, what if she left to go fight in the war? And then, so we're like, well, okay, so these stories have to be consecutive to each other for that to be true. So Garrett can't be there because he'd have to be here. And then that never panned out. Like, that's, the story didn't play out that way. Uh, but like, we made decisions based on something we were trying to set up that didn't happen. And yeah. that happens a lot. <laughs> and that happens a lot. Like, we, we always have concurrent sets and we're always trying to create the feeling of one continuous grand story. Uh, but the reality is, you know, these, these are all separate magic sets. They all have their own project deadlines. They all have, you know, the fiction deadlines are often different than the set deadlines. Um, so the particulars uh, can be tricky sometimes. 
Yeah, the other thing, uh, to use War of the Spark as an example, one of the things that happens is um, different things are done at different times. So, for example, one of the complaints we got about War of the Spark was, where was Dak? Because in, in, the, in the novel, like, Dak ends up playing a decent role in the story. And he actually, uh, spoiler, guys, uh, he dies in the story. Um, and we, he wasn't at all on the set. You're like, how, how in the world did that happen? And we're like, well, that none of that had been written when we made the set. Like, it happened yeah. after the set was done. Um, and clearly, had we known, I mean, Dak, well, here's the Dak problem, by the way. This is a good example. Um, so we, ba- we color balanced everything. And so we had, I think, two slots for blue-red. We had an uncommon slot for blue-red, and we had a rare slot for blue-red. And we had to have Raul Zara, because he played a, a big role in the story. And then it was, it was like, do we want Sahili or do we want Dak, I think, was the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, we ended up wanting Sahili more than... I mean, we, we, didn't know the, we didn't know the novel story, so like, we didn't know that Dak was going to be part of it. So, um, And we picked Sahili over Dak, just for, for you know... Just balancing yes. things, right? She 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 was a more popular character in, in many situations. She also has a more uh, unique power suite. Like she's about artifacts and and copying, which is an interesting uh, interesting card to make. To to kind of like one of the things that ended up being really cool about limited gameplay in War of the Spark is that most of it is sort of it's like, it's a pretty gold set. There's a lot. It's occurring on Ravnica, so there's a lot of um, two color cards. But then you also then just open this personality. There's a lot of legends in the set as well, just to kind of, you know, showcase legends from Ravnica that we hadn't seen for a long time. And the feel of it was like, oh, I'm 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 mostly like uh, blue red, but then I also opened uh, Sahili or whatever. And now now I'm feeling like, wow, artifacts matter a lot more just because this one personality is in my deck. We thought that was just a cool result of having these characters. Uh, often at lower rarities, uh, many of them at uncommon, that had such strong, we, we call them power suites. I don't know if you've talked about that on, on the podcast, but uh, um, just like the, the list of that um, of that character's specialties, magical specialties and, per, and uh, personal spells um, that are so characteristic and, and the designers and, and Dave Humphreys really tried to nail those power suites to each uh, character in the, in the card designs. So there's a whole bunch of weirdos. I mean, there's 36 characters who have their own particular style that you can open, and now they're just you know fighting for you in your deck, and so you get this this feeling of this this crazy hodgepodge of um, of characters from all over the place. Yeah, you, real quickly, something you brought up. This kind of a little funny side note is some planeswalkers are made with the cards in mind, and some are sort of made more story related, and so some of the time, like for example. Something like Chandra is easy to do, right? She does direct damage. She like fires not. It's not hard to do a pyromancer. Magic has plenty of damage in it. Um, but then you get someone like Dovin, who like he finds weakness in things. Like what? What does that mechanically mean? You know, what I'm saying it, it's a lot trickier mm-hmm. to pull off. And um, one of the things is I know that we lean toward uh, wanting to play Walkers that are like, oh, they, like Sahili's very easy to do. She's a artifact theme she copies things yeah. like she's made to make fun magic cards out of and other cards are definitely a little more challenging um yeah, yeah. and that was um that was also reflected in the fact that uh we wanted to have a signature spell for each of the planeswalkers as well so there's an instant or sorcery um and sometimes other card types some are creatures are, yeah yeah some are creatures um that represent uh 
the like that that was cast or summoned by one of the planeswalkers in the set. So like um, Nihiri has a spell that uh, shows Nihiri casting magic and using her particular kind of magic. So that was also work with the team to kind of like, does this you know does this feel close enough for a J spell? Does this make sense for a Nissa spell and that sort of thing? Um, so on top of all the story moments we were trying to cr- get across in uh, the instances and sorceries and enchantments, uh, we we're also trying to reflect that like. You know, seeing the planeswalkers even more than 36 planeswalker cards in the set is that like I'm going to reinforce that by you also see them all over the spells. Right. One of the things that's always true is whatever our theme is, and in this case it was kind of planeswalkers, it's how do you spread that to other parts of the set? Yeah, yeah, we can make planeswalkers, and obviously we made a lot of planeswalkers, but that's even that's only 36 cards in the whole set. How, how do you do it? And like the signature spells were kind of a cool way to spread it to, especially some lower rarity stuff, because the Planeswalkers, even, we made some uncommon Planeswalkers, but even then, is this still, you know, the Aspen is still not that high, although 36, is, it wasn't too bad. Okay, so I want to talk about another big project of yours on this set, Doug, which is uh, the story. So normally, a normal Magic set will have, I don't know, five to seven, like, spotlight cards or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How many did this set have? Uh, this set had something like 20, 21, 23. I, it's, it's been a while now. I used to have it off the top of my head. Um, so that represented a huge uptick in the number of story moments, uh, which meant we approached so much about this set differently uh, than normal sets. Um, there's always the uh, a summary, an outline of what the story is behind the set. But this one had an extremely detailed, like, Instead of a world guide for this set, we we had something we called an event guide. And it was much more like a story Bible. It was much more like Act 1, here are the beats that happen. Here's what it looks like in Act 1. Here's who's involved. Here's, you know, it it was much more like um, a a treatment for a movie. Um, And then we had uh, different visual cues to, to indicate... Uh, where in the story, early, middle, or late, um, each card was taking place. We had set pieces that were like locations. Um, can, we, can, you uh, talk about the timing? can you talk about the timing, Doug? How do yeah. we visually show the timing? Uh, so we we divided Act 1, 2, and 3 up by, by the lighting in the sky. Um, so we knew that the climax of the, of the story was... Nicol Bolas casting the Elder Spell, beginning his ritual to sacrifice lots of people's sparks and gain ultimate power. And so that was going to, like, completely affect the way the sky looked. Swirling, greenish, eerie, you know, like, stormy skies, like a mystical storm. Uh, and that would tell you very clearly, once you looked at the art of a card, that, wow, this this tutu or the spell or whatever is taking place at that uh, moment in Act 3. For Acts 2 and 1... We wanted another way to use the sky to kind of portray the the act that it was in. So for Act One, everything that was happening early, early in the story, we used kind of like these pinkish, purplish dawn, early morning skies. Um, so if you look and see in a War of the Spark card, and there's this kind of um, sunrise coloration to the sky, that's Act One. Um, and then for Act Two, it's just sort of like a normal sunny Ravnica day. So like like kind of so so you basically get more early morning midday and then elder spell. <laughs> those are those are visual indicators to reinforce. You know we know that that uh, the set is going to be experienced 
in, you know, people open cards out of booster packs that we have no way of controlling in what order people are exposed to the cards. So we wanted some way to kind of give you a way to kind of batch the cards that you opened to get a, a, at least a broad sense of where in the story they fell. And then let's talk about the preview, because we did something cool for the previews for this set. Yeah, for the first time, this was the first time I've ever done this, or to my knowledge, this has ever been done, which was I took every card in the set, including every basic land, and made uh, put them in chronological order. <laughs> um, we made a gigantic list of, um, sometimes they were, they were grouped. I mean, like, so there were 12 or so uh, major buckets, and uh, so this is the the battle in the 10th district. This is the um, battle of the Sky Theater, which is happening around um, New Prague. This is the battle that is right before we uh, do the assault on Bolas' Citadel. And so we worked with the, um, the communications team, the, the web teams, and were able to align the previews for the set to that chronological ordering. So the uh, cards that you were seeing earliest during preview weeks were the earliest in the story, and the ones we waited till the very, very end uh, were the ones that occur last in the story, which is really, really cool. Um, we did not know if that was going to work. <laughs> Usually there's all kinds of constraints on what cards can be shown when and what venues want what kind of card and all kinds of things. But uh, again, we asked for the ambitious version, like what if we previewed the set in roughly chronological order? And it's so that if you were you know, keeping up on what cards were previewed day by day, you were kind of following along in the story. So that was really cool. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about an event set, just to separate from sort of a normal magic set, is normally when you make a magic set, though it's so world-centric, um, and this set was, I mean, like, we did an interesting thing where we came to Ravnica before this set, like we we had two whole sets of Ravnica. We got all got all your Ravnica needs out of the way. So like, okay, you got your Ravnica set, and then it's like, okay, it's not about that. We we got we we did that. It's it's about sort of like we're we're really really trying to service the story. Um, and it was a very interesting from a design standpoint for me. I know like just okay, how do we service? How does a set service the story more so than an environment? And that that came with a lot of challenges. Yeah, I mean we, like. We, we, it was a, a very cool idea to visit Ravnica before having the event set set on Ravnica. We knew that we knew that players would be wanting that very fun guild model gameplay of Ravnica. Like, oh, good, we're going back to Ravnica, but we don't get guilds. Oh, that's that's too bad. So we wanted to make sure to get the the setting established for those first two sets, so that we can then um, have this big story there. The, the other thing it allowed us to do was to uh, have, a, have a little bit of setup. We were able to um, use the story for the first two Ravnica sets there to um, create the, um, the conditions that led to the War of the Spark. We saw Bolas's machinations. We saw him installing uh, Planeswalker allies of his to get in charge of the guilds uh, so that he could you know, kind of get his claws into Ravnica and prepare the stage for the War of the Spark. Yeah, and um, it also helped kind of uh, remind players of what the what the nouns and verbs of Ravnica are so that we could refer to them frequently in the battles in uh, War of the Spark. Yeah, one of the cool things I know we did in making the first two sets is you knew like all the locations of where the, all the big battles were going to be. So we're like, okay, let's remind the audience 
You know, this is new prom. This is this. This is that. You know, so that the audience was kind of like, we purposely like showed you those scenes ahead of time. So when we showed you again, like we reminded you they were there. So that was. Yeah. I remember doing that. So I mean, what? Is, go ahead. Okay. Uh, just if if only to. I mean, some in some ways we were. Uh, we wanted to create a baseline of Ravnica as well to show what was going to be different in War of the Spark as well. Nigel uh, Wallace even changes the skyline of Ravnica. He installs a gigantic statue of himself, and he creates his gigantic citadel, which we were going to show as part of the Ravnica sky, skyline in War. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we had enough scenes that showed that that wasn't true yet uh, in the Ravnica sets leading before it. So just, again, setting the stage uh, for the events of the, of the War of the Spark. So, so anyway, th this was, I'm going to talk a little bit about how it's not often that you in magic, like set something up years ahead of time and then finally get to that. I mean, so what was it like? I mean, you literally pitched this three years ahead of time and then finally three years later, we're making it. What was that like? Yeah. Well, and, and it felt even longer because we were, we were pitching the idea long before Kaladesh, which was kind of the official kickoff of the arc. So we had to know, uh, this, I mean, three, four, five years ahead of time. So finally seeing it uh, come out was incredible. We, uh, I was there with uh, lead art director Taylor Ingverson at PAX East when we shared the trailer for the first time. And we had all these people who were at PAX East uh, who had filed in and we had this gigantic stage set up. And um, it, it, you know, the background of the stage was this, this huge panorama of, of the Ravican skyline but with sparks flying around, you know, what is going on? And we got to, we're, so we're sitting there on the stage facing the audience. So we can just all, the, the trailer itself is to our back. So we're not watching it. All we're watching is the faces of the people who are experiencing it for the first time. And just seeing, it, it, was, it was electric for me just to kind of see the emotions. I mean, that trailer was also uh, chef's kiss. It was, it, the trailer was, was great at getting at the emotional heart of what was going on in the War of the Spark. And we watched people burst into tears. We watched people cheer. We watched, you know, just seeing the, that was the payoff for me, for me and Taylor, was just getting to see that all this work, uh, we're gonna we're gonna literally watch the faces of the first people exposed to what's going on in the War of the Spark. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, of course, back at, back at the office, we're already working on the next stuff. Like, we're, we, in terms of the work, We've completed War of the Spark long ago, but we're we're getting to see finally that that experience hit the players, which was um, really really rewarding. It, it was one of the top points in my career. So one before we're, we're uh, I'm almost to my desk here, but uh, there's one last thing that's a cool behind the scenes thing that I wanted to share to have you talk about. The audience just doesn't know. So you actually put together a a trailer of your own, like you were trying to. You were trying to get everybody in, in R&D kind of on board. and uh, So can you talk a little bit about the trailer you made? Right. So um, I am not a graphic designer or an animator or, you know, I, <laughs> I, I went to word school, not picture school. So um, my expertise is not in creating visuals. But uh, with a lot of duct tape and PowerPoint and using uh, images from our internal multiverse server, I put together a kind of what if trailer this you know the war of the spark had not been green lit the whole idea of doing this set was not okayed yet we'd been sort of talking about it but it wasn't it wasn't a slam dunk yet and i made this kind of fake trailer i i paid a dollar to buy a piece of music off of, of 
of iTunes uh, to, you know, get kind of like, you know, good movie trailer music. And then I just showed images of uh, the Gatewatch, Ravnica, the, the, tr the tragedies that were going to befall Ravnica, this, this, this beloved world. And then this kind of like ending of this trailer that just showed, bam, 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 all these Planeswalker characters you knew. Turns out that some of them were inaccurate by the end. <laughs> but, uh, but it, you know, it was trying to get at the emotion of, of what this set could be about. And then after a few key people saw it, then it was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing this set. We're, we're going to go forward with it. We still don't know how we're going to make it all. But uh, yeah, this little fake trailer was kind of instrumental in getting it through. And in your fake trailer, what did you call the set? I called it War of the Spark. <laughs> so I was very excited <laughs> that that passed legal, you know, trademark search, all kinds of things. Like in my heart, it was always War of the Spark. And so I was very excited that that ended up being the name of the product. Yeah, one of the things that, that just for the, the audience to understand is we come up with cool ideas, but you have to sell everybody that it's a cool idea. And it's very easy after the fact, after it's successful, to go, well, of course it's a great idea, right? You know, it's very easy in 2020 hindsight, uh, but it's a lot harder to sell something when you have nothing. You know, you, you have to, and I remember Doug showing the, 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 the video we put together, and it was very powerful. And uh, I, I think it really was like the, the thing that made it happen, so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, we work in a very collaborative environment, so uh, people don't always know that you know, we don't always agree. We, like, not everybody wants to do the same projects that everybody else does. Not everybody sees the same um, potential in it, even if you do really clearly in your mind. Mark knows this. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so, so sometimes it takes a little bit of internal marketing. You have, to, you have to show why this thing is powerful, why this is going to really capture people's hearts and minds. Well, anyway, I, I'm like I said, I I always enjoy like I, I felt like you gave a great idea, and then it just I'm trying to figure out how to make it happen. So I'm happy at like with the dust settled. Like I'm happy like we actually delivered. That was one of my fears that you had this really awesome idea and we wouldn't step up to the idea. So <laughs> no, I, I I was so pleased with just you know the the teams in R and D, the the art teams, the trailer teams, the web teams. Everybody stepped up with doing their version of the ambitious take on this set, which was just a huge honor to me. I, I just got to uh, be a participant ultimately in how many different groups of smart, smart people got to deliver on, on this concept and uh, make it as cool as possible. Well, with that, guys, I, I, I see my desk. So that means, we all know what that means. It means it's the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So thanks, Doug. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. And everybody, I will see all you next time. Bye-bye.